0: Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the History of Economic Thought. Um, I'm really excited to begin this podcast Um, and the goal of this podcast is to really tell a narrative of how we get to the world we know today of um, when it comes to the field of economics. And so I want this to be a podcast for everybody, that everybody, even if you're not an economist yourself, but you're really just curious, you know, why is the economics world the way it is today, then this would be a good place for you to really look at and get a feeling of why that is. And so in order to tell that journey, I also wanted to be fun and not just bogged down with information. So to start off the podcast, I really took some time and thought to myself, if I was going to introduce somebody to the world of economics, which economist would I start with? And I think the clear answer here is a guy by the name of John Law. And the reason for this is, is that John Law is an interesting fellow who really does a lot to shape the modern day and he's not very bogged down with theory that is to say and his story is really fun to listen to so that's what we're going to be talking about today so without further ado let's go ahead and get into it so john law um is interesting um he's born in 1671 he's the son of a wealthy goldsmith in scotland And goldsmiths at the time are sort of operating as banks almost. You know, for people that aren't really in a major city, goldsmiths sometimes are the best thing you got to a bank. You can deposit your gold there and you can use the little note they give to trade with and pick up your gold later. And goldsmiths can give out this gold as loans or make things with it. So it's a process that works for everybody. And this is important for John Law because it gives him an introduction to the world of economics pretty much at birth. And he's going to grow up being tutored in mathematics and stuff like this. But early on in John Law's life, uh, his father passes away. And so his mother ends up taking over the estate, living at a mansion they have. Now, John Law gets some of this inheritance when his father dies. And at 21, he's going to leave his estate behind and he's going to go to London. Now, in London... We can see that uh, John Law, um, well, he's, he's a gambler, so to say. And um, turns out he's not that good of one. Uh, he's pretty bad. In fact, very quickly and early on in his time in London, he's going to get sent to a debtor's prison. And so debtor's prison is where you have so much debt that they basically throw you in jail um, unless you can pay that debt back. So John Law's way of getting out of this is he writes a letter to his mom, asking her to sell their estate, sell their mansion in order to bail him out. But interestingly enough, John Law's mom, um, an incredible woman in the history of economics, had actually saved up enough money to pay off this debt for him. And she was even gonna work down how much debt was needed to be paid back. So John Law gets out of prison. And for John Law, this is where we really see an interesting shift in how he operates. See, suddenly he begins obsessed with the idea of things like statistics and probability that are becoming really big at this time. And he starts to use this information in gambling. And he gets really good at it. Now, while in London, um, not only does he gamble, but he's also known as sort of a womanizer. Um... The people in his town did not care for him too much at all. Um, he, he even gets in a little duel at one point with a guy named Edward Wilson. And this duel starts because they're both interested in the same girl. The law goes by carriage to a field and meets Wilson for a duel. And duels at this time are fought where they were considered noble by the aristocracy. And you would go out, the two of you, you would take a sword and you'd fight. And Law wins this with a quick defensive counter jab. And Wilson dies. Now, an interesting note about Wilson that's getting him out of the story is that Wilson was a very like flamboyant and well-known man in town. And his family was quite rich. And so Law, even though he killed Wilson, in what's considered a noble way for the time is going to get sent to court and he's actually going to be given the death penalty which is crazy for the time as most people who participated and accidentally killed somebody in a duel oftentimes were just pardoned law however sends note back to his mother and john law's mother once again is able to help him get out of trouble along with help of the king actually and so john law's going to be able to make it out But he's quickly sort of thrown back in. Um, This is likely as a result of Wilson's family getting him thrown back in prison. Not on a death sentence, but he is able to escape. Um, He actually flees the country. And he sort of goes missing for around 20 years. We're not exactly sure where he goes, but we do have some general ideas. One thing we do know about him during this time is that he continues this habit of gambling and womanizing throughout Europe and as a result of this he actually meets some really famous people and along with this one important thing to bring up that's happening during this time in Europe is that people are having a problem with gold and silver coins you see gold and silver coins have some fatal flaws number one in order to make them you have to have a stable reserve of gold and silver and when every country in Europe is trying to get their hands on gold and silver, It's sort of a hard thing to do. Another thing that's appearing during this time is that people are actually taking these coins and they're cutting off the edges so that the coins don't have as much gold and silver as they did before. And this is a term that we're gonna call in economics debasement. For the rest of this episode, just remember that if I say debasement, we're talking about um, somebody is changing a currency to make it less valuable. They're hurting the intrinsic value, as we might say. This starts to get Law thinking. And he starts to question, you know, well, what do we even need gold and silver for? So during Law's time in Europe, he's going to meet a woman in 1702 by the name of Catherine. And he's going to end up falling in love with this woman. However, at the time, Catherine's married. So the two end up deciding to elope in Italy. And these are one of the places we know he is. But when we're really gonna see Law show back up and really start to make a name for himself is when he ends up moving to Amsterdam. Now Amsterdam is an interesting place at the time because Amsterdam in Europe is sort of the financial hotspot. If you wanna be a person that's known for your big ideas in the world of economics and finance, Amsterdam is the place to be in the early 1700s. So John Law being in Amsterdam isn't that much of a surprise. His love for gambling allowed him to fit right in with the Amsterdam stock market, which was thriving at this time. And one important thing about Amsterdam is that Amsterdam has an interesting bank, the Amsterdam Exchange Bank, that has its own bank money. And the way this works is that Amsterdam had sort of figured out that, you know, these gold and silver coins all have their own different stamps on them but they still have some sort of underlying value of that gold and silver. So why don't we just measure the amount of gold and silver and then we write down on a piece of paper how much that value is worth and then give it to individuals and suddenly this can be seen as money. And this works. And it causes Amsterdam to have an economic boom. And John Law sees this and he's amazed. This, to him, feels like the answer to a lot of the financial problems going on in a lot of the rest of Europe. And so John Law comes up with this belief from this that you know what, money's only a means of exchange. It's not real wealth. You know, national wealth can't even be measured through trade and this is important because this aspect is sort of needed. And so Law begins thinking about these ideas and he thinks to himself, you know, Metals don't actually have any value. They only have value because people think they do. Because think of the average person at this time. They're not actually using the silver or the gold to make anything or to use. They're just using it as a means of exchange. It's bartering. So why can't we just barter something that's more efficient, so to say? Like what Bank of Amsterdam is doing, where they're bartering these bills of exchange. And so this is going to cause him to write up something called Money and Trade Considered with a proposal for supplying the nation with money. And this sort of pamphlet slash book that he's going to create is essentially what is going to get John Law thrown into the history books. And he discusses some really important ideas in here. And I just want to take out this quote so we can see what he says and dissect what he's trying to get across. So John Law said, as money increased, the disadvantages and inconveniences of barter were removed. The poor and idle were employed. More of the land was labored. The product increased. Manufacturers and trade improved. The landed men lived better and the people with less dependence on them. And so what is John Law really trying to say with this? Well, John Law is really making the argument that money is only a means of exchange. It's not real wealth. So instead of focusing on that, what we should focus on is actually our trade. You see, trade is what he's going to say leads to our national power. And that in order to increase this, we have to increase the money supply. See, without a money supply to go around, trade stops. There's not enough money to be sent around. And this is, is what's caused whenever you have a lack of gold and silver. If there's not enough coins to be printed for people to use and buy things and trade, well then, we're slowing down the economy when it really doesn't need to be. We're causing people to lose their jobs, to remain poor and idle, as he says. And these are just inconveniences. They're not necessary. And with something like the bills of exchange, like the Bank of Amsterdam has, we can get rid of this. So how are we going to do this? Well, John Law is going to propose the establishment of a central bank to create and regulate the money supply, and he's going to do this in the form of banknotes to be circulated in exchange of gold and silver. In order to get this started, John Law has to begin using his connections that he's built up from all this gambling, and so his first place he wants to go to is he wants to go back to his home country of Scotland and propose this idea. And it doesn't go that well. Um, John Law's going to get turned down a couple times. And so John Law realizes he's probably not going to be able to do this in Scotland. But someone comes around. They say, you know what, you should go talk to the French king. And this is an incredible idea. Um, at the time, France is in sort of a trouble. They have an extreme amount of debt, even though the government held good trade balances with every country but England. However, the problem lied in two things. Number one, um, the country has major issues with fraud. The debasement, like we were saying earlier. Two, the country was having exceptional issues collecting taxes. Um, The exact amount is unknown, but estimates show that during 1700 to 1720, tax revenue dropped 11%, peaking at 20% in 1710 due to an ongoing reception. Often during this time, wealthy French families were exempt from paying many taxes. The tax system itself was actually decentralized. Often it was auctioned off or left to local governments to take care of instead of the central government. And this isn't helped by the fact that French royalty was really poor at handling its finances and was constantly getting up into wars. So John Law is going to take his ideas to them and he's going to say, hey, listen, I can get rid of these problems with fraud. And with the central bank, we're going to collect taxes at the central level, and we're going to get rid of the decentralized tax system. Ferenc, however, doesn't really like this idea. Um, And in fact, his first proposal actually gets denied because of this. So he's going to come around on a second attempt, and this time he's going to advocate the development of a national bank to provide and increase sources of credit and also the issuance of paper money backed by land, gold, or silver. Now, a big thing for why he's trying to create a private enterprise here is that laws proposing that this policy would assist the state in creating a monopoly of finance and trade, and the profits reaped from this venture would assist in paying off the national debt. You see, it's law's belief that an absolutist government ran by a competent individual was far better than a government with less centralized power. This belief, however, isn't actually founded in any real historical truth. In fact, if we actually look at why France has so much debt at the time, it's because as a nation, they are paying a higher interest rate than the average business is. France's timing is paying on average 4% on their debt, compared to the average of 2% for the businesses. And this isn't what you would really expect to find. You would think, if you're following a loss proposal, that since France is led by a king who has centralized power, as long as he's not incompetent, then he should be paying way less than the 2%. And even if he isn't exactly competent, we shouldn't expect it to be that much higher than 2%. But they're paying double what the average person is. And we can even look today to see which countries have the lowest debt percentage. And they're almost all Democratic countries. So this is where we see the first crack in loss proposal. Although it's definitely not going to be the last. So, John Law takes these ideas. And in 1716, he's going to found the General Bank in Paris. This is a private bank that has the authority to issue notes for 12 years. And it's sanctioned by the king himself. Law does have bigger plans for this company, however. Which isn't surprising. This man is the gambler of the time. This man is willing to take risks. And so the next year, he's going to decree the bank general notes should be used to pay their taxes and this is important because this is going to standardize the use of notes now instead of people having to have gold and silver now they have to have bank general notes and this is important and law has another belief about france see he doesn't think that france is doing enough to develop their territories and so in 1717, he's going to combine his bank with the Louisiana Company, which solely held the privilege of developing French colonies of the Mississippi Valley of North America. And shares in this company were then listed at 500 livres each and could be purchased by anybody. Law's company, however, was actually underperforming compared to a rival company. Absolutism, however, does end up saving Law in this situation because he ends up getting granted a monopoly. And so in 1718, the bank would be renamed the Royal Bank. And this is interesting because it indicates to the population that these notes are actually being issued by the king himself. It also turned the bank into essentially France's first central bank. And Law gets appointed as the Controller General of Finances in order to attract capital. In 1719, the company ends up making a shift taking over the company of the Indies and China and would then be known as the Mississippi Company. September of that year, the company lent the French government 1.2 billion livres to pay off the entire debt. And then a month later, Law was in charge of collecting taxes. And so finally, Law has sort of come full circle on his ideas. You know, he promised to France that he would pay off their debt. Now he has. And the thing that he was denied originally, which was the power to collect taxes, he's now been given. From this point on, however, um, Law's companies are going to begin to show some of the cracks in their structure. Um, Many of Law's ideas were great, but they do have some major flaws. And there's sort of a quote I want to give y'all that I think sums up John Law's ideas perfectly, and that's that in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. And this quote sort of sums up what's going to happen from here on out. And so here's where we get into the descent of the Mississippi Company. And one ends up being called the Mississippi Bubble. And in economics, is considered one of the biggest crashes in history. And so how does this occur? Well, one problem with John Law's ideas is that he has far too much power in the system. John Law is essentially the French economy himself at this point. He has the approval of the king. He's one of the leaders of the Banque Générale. And his Mississippi company has access to nearly all of France's territories. And even the currency that he's given out is used by the population in France. But remember, Law says that this is actually one of the benefits. Because he himself is a competent man. And as a competent man, this should work out. But here's sort of the problem. You see, everybody thinks themselves the competent man. You know, if you're in charge, it's because you thought yourself competent enough to be in charge. There was no leader who thought himself bad before becoming a leader. And this even shows Law's Achilles heel. In fact, we saw it at the beginning of this episode. If you remember, Law had originally gone broke because of his thing with gambling. He wasn't aware of the risks. And sure, Law has learned statistics and probability, and that caused him to make wealth. But Now you see, Law sort of lost some of the humility that he had gained after he went bankrupt. You know, you can use things like statistics and probability to come up with good ideas and solutions, but only if you know how the game's being played. You have to know the inherent risk involved. And in situations like this, where you're dealing with something as large as a whole economy, it's almost impossible to know the real risk you're dealing with. John Law's in uncharted territories that he doesn't understand. But because he thinks of himself as competent in this situation, he thinks that he can handle it no matter what. And this issue is going to get personified in June 17th of 1719 when Law issues 50,000 shares of the Mississippi Company at 550 livres, Now, I say Law issued these shares because he personally guaranteed the shares. This is even adding on more risk to the situation than Law already had. You know, if we even look at companies today, you'll see that companies are considered their own entities. They're almost considered people in the eyes of the law. And this is a way of separating them from the owners so that if the company goes under, then the owner doesn't get hurt as a result. But Law gets rid of this idea. He says, I'll personally guarantee these shares. I will personally be held responsible if anything goes wrong. Now, realistically, this is a gamble that no sensible person would or should ever undertake. Now, this podcast isn't financial advice but please do not engage in anything that involves you taking up this much risk. It is not recommended. And one month later, he's gonna issue another 50,000 shares, but this time he's gonna almost double the price to 1,000 livres apiece. And the price of these shares are solely based off the idea that the Americas were a land of endless riches that could establish France as the leader of the world. And the price begins to skyrocket as individuals all wanted in on the Mississippi Company. Many were even buying new shares with old shares as collateral. By March of the next year, the price of the stock had risen all the way up to 12,500 levels apiece. Let's note that the original price was only 550 levels. It's over 12,000 more now. This price is clearly a bubble. And the only thing that could prevent this bubble from bursting at this point is if France struck gold in the Americas. So, where do they begin this journey into the Americas? Where does this expedition start? Well, it's going to start in a major city called New Orleans. Um, If you're an American, you know this is New Orleans. And if you live in New Orleans, uh, you know this is probably going to fail. Um, and it's founded by a man named Jean-Baptiste Lemoy de Bénéville in 1718. Now, there was a good reason New Orleans is chosen. France needed a city to be its main port, a place where it could import and export goods if the company is going to be successful in the region. Now, New Orleans' placement on the Mississippi River makes it a perfect location for this. For those of you not aware with New Orleans, however, An interesting note about New Orleans is that it's essentially a swamp. Um, And a little note about swamps is that diseases grow really well there. So within the first year of this French colony being set up, 80% of the people who went died within the first year. And when information got back to France, La knew he was in trouble. John Law is dealing with some other problems at this time as well, though. You see, what his idea was, was that banknotes would help to establish the currency by putting more out there. Trade would increase as a result. But there's an interesting thing that happens whenever you put out more currency. You see, one thing that gold and silver has that paper currency doesn't is that because there's a limited amount, it has anti-inflationary measures. Essentially what this means is, is that prices remain stable. And for the average person, this is something you want. Because it means that the value of your currency doesn't decrease from one day to the next. Let's think about it this way. Let's say you were a craftsman in 1700s France. And let's say you made shoes. If you sold a shoe for a dollar, but then that dollar was worth about 70 cents the next day, Well, then that means the value of your labor dropped 30% in a single day. Now, France didn't have it drop 30% in a day, but it did have it drop by 50% in a single year. People's money was worth half of what it was the year before. And if you are somebody who's more wealthy, in the aristocracy, for instance, then you are exceptionally upset. Because you just lost half of the overall value of your estate within a single year. And if you're the French peasantry, this is horrible because now a lot of your wealth is simply going to just affording food. Food that was already hard to afford prior. And so this is going to be one of the things that is going to start turning public opinion against John Law. And it's going to cause the trust people had in John Law to begin to dwindle. Law knew that if he continued this system, then it was going to crash. But during this period, Law has not given up his gambling ways, and he was living lavishly. Multiple estates, multiple women, nicest clothes one can buy. And Law cannot fathom the idea of giving all this up. So there's a couple things Law does to keep the prices up. But I really want to focus on one for this episode so that it doesn't get too long. And that Law was worried about gold and silver returning as the major way people are going to purchase their goods. People had begun to lose the rose-colored glasses surrounding the Mississippi Company. They've heard the news. And for many of them, this swamp is not going to be their salvation. And Law's starting to realize that if this continues, the stock couldn't keep going up. And Law realized that if this occurred, then the stock would have to burst. So in order to prevent this from happening, he outlawed the ownership of more than 500 livres of metal coins. Then he tried to change the price of gold and silver dozens of times. This only seems to have worsened the issue. And people began to see Law's fear and begin to fear for themselves. And you see, this is where Law sort of forgets his original ideals. Remember, he said that currency has value because people have trust in it. But how can they have trust in it if that who sells it to them doesn't even have trust in it as well? This lack of trust in John Law's own system is really going to come to fruition whenever he attempts to set a price floor for the shares. He does this by saying that he's going to guarantee the price of a single share at 9,000 livres apiece. And this might have worked. But John Law actually takes it back after he makes this decree shortly thereafter he says that no longer is this price floor going to be enacted immediately the slide begins to happen because for the average person this is the ultimate betrayal it's the ultimate slide of trust and so in mass people are going to take to the streets and they're going to begin rioting and for john law this is sort of where the story of him in france ends um after this he's gonna end up being put on house arrest. And then he's gonna be kicked out of the country with his wife and daughter unable to leave the country while he's under investigation. At one point, he ends up uh, making a return to France, but it's all for naught. And he'd end up dying broke in Venice. So why did I wanna bring up this story? Why is it so important what we talked about here today? Well, the year John Law ends up getting arrested is the year 1720. In 1789, the French Revolution would break out. But let's take a second to really think about what caused the French Revolution. Now, it might have been a while since you took uh, European history, so a little refresher. But some of the big things that are going to be talked about during the French Revolution is some ideas that had come just beforehand. And many of these ideas surrounded the idea that, you know what? Maybe the people should be in charge of things. Maybe it is, in fact, individuals who are better at making decisions for themselves. And if you really think about what John Law personified, it was the exact opposite of this ideal. The whole time he had said that he was the competent individual. And that a competent king could take care of the problems for the people. But we've seen that it didn't work. That, in fact, it caused problems for everyone involved. And so many of these French thinkers are going to have lived through this moment. They're going to have seen the problems that arise when one person rules the nation, no matter how competent he thinks he is. And even the king during this time is going to get in many wars that is going to rise up the French debt. French people, before the French Revolution, spent nearly 90% of their income just on bread. But if you remember, John Law had claim to have been able to fix these problems. You know, it was his idea that if we increased trade, more money would come in. And increased trade and more money meant better circumstances for everybody. So I like to think sometimes that there's an alternate timeline where John Law had sort of seen the problems of his way, was able to fix them, and prevented the French Revolution from occurring. Sadly, that isn't the timeline we live in. There are some good things that are going to come from John La's ideas, and I hope he can explore those in a future episode. But before I let you go, there's one quote I want to share with you. It's a quote that was originally in French, and so I want to share with you all the English translation. And it says, It's a shame, really, that he did not once place limits on his boundless imagination, for he has something great about him. He has perished for too grand a conception of himself. Thank you guys for tuning in for this episode of the podcast. Then I hope to see you all here next time.